Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to this week's Progeny podcast, election special. Today I am joined by Isa Ali, journalist and political analyst. We will discuss the upcoming UK elections, what should we be looking out for when voting, the role of the media and their coverage of the parties, how has Islamophobia featured in this election, and what should Muslims be doing outside of the elections to get more involved in politics. Thank you for joining us, Isa. Uh, it's good to have you on the Progeny podcast. Um, I want to start by asking you, how did we get to this election? Um, and how did we get to such a turmoil where the country, I feel, is very divided? Thanks for having me. So uh, this election is the result of um, the paralysis brought about by the uh, Brexit referendum in 2016. And uh, following that referendum, a uh, another election in 2017, which former Prime Minister Theresa May called because she thought that she would win a big majority and would be able to get a deal she had negotiated with the EU through Parliament. The consequence of that was she didn't win the election outright. It was a hung Parliament and so since then we've just had endless extensions of the Brexit deadline. We've had endless uh, Theresa May's negotiated her deal with the EU, brought it back to the House of Parliament two or three times. It's been rejected every time. Boris Johnson then tried to have, uh, became Prime Minister, tried to negotiate a deal. That too got rejected. So in the end, uh, Parliament all got together and agreed to hold an election early. Now in this country, uh, since I think David Cameron's time, you can only have an election every five years. He changed the law. Mm -hmm. But they basically passed legislation to bring an election forward, almost an emergency measure because it was just paralysis. There was no majority for any of the different Brexit options should we leave with no deal with a deal should we remain should we have a second referendum parliament couldn't make its mind up so now we face a situation where uh, this election has been called and uh, it will be in many ways an election about brexit although some of the parties want it to be about other topics as well. i was just going to say the, the whole elections brought up because of brexit um let's just agree on one thing or that the fact that brexit should happen now, the, on what terms, whether it's a, it's a hard Brexit or, or a soft one, or what are the terms negotiated with the, the EU, we should agree that the country voted for Brexit to take place. So um, it should happen, or do you think there should be maybe another referendum? Well, exactly. This is the argument that uh, especially those who voted to leave put forward. And actually, maybe some of the people who voted to remain as well, because mm -hmm. they say it would set a bad precedent if you give people the chance to vote for something. They then vote one way. You don't like the answer. And so you decide to cancel it or delay it or frustrate it in many different ways. Now, there are some who say that um, the election, in particular on the leave side, was run due to some would call them lies some would say less than true some fabrication things like <laughs> you know the, the big example is boris johnson in his bus that said we would have 350 million pounds a week to put into the nhs, NHS. and that then turned out to maybe not be uh, completely true as in the money would be there but would they put it towards the nhs and all these other little elements came in also things like um cambridge analytica which was the company that um was also alleged to have been involved in taking people's data on facebook and targeting them with ads and again the people on the remain side argue that that wasn't uh fair fighting if you will um and so for those reasons they argue we should have at least a second referendum or in some cases council breaks altogether the other side of the argument is that 
Um, the government then under David Cameron spent millions of pounds sending leaflets into people's homes, telling them to remain. So it was a fair fight. It's just that the Leave side fought mm -hmm. the better campaign and they fought the better campaign online. So um, that's definitely one of the arguments is that uh, this is uh, a test of, you know, democracy and people's rights. It The referendum was advisory, so it doesn't mean that it legally has to be followed. But immediately after it, or not long after it, Parliament almost entirely agreed to trigger Article 50 and mm -hmm. leave the EU, so or start the process of leaving the EU. So, uh, Some th say that was too quick, the, the yeah, decision to do that. Exactly, that they might have rushed into it. Um, and I think as well, even leaving aside the legality of it, I think it becomes perception, right? Like if you're somebody who voted to leave, and then you don't end up leaving, you're going to end up thinking, well, this system is just fixed. It's yep. rubbish. It's not It's not fit for purpose. And then you'll. Uh, there's a certain danger that people will become pushed to different extremes. I've noticed that um, a lot of people, like I, I've met a lot of, of of our youth in our community, and they've they've sort of said, "Yeah, I've registered to vote this year. You know, um, I'm going to vote. You know, who should I vote for?" So I feel there's there's our community specifically um, is more involved uh, than in previous years. But just um, for those maybe voting for the first time, how does how does the parliamentary system work in the UK? Because it's obviously it's different from, from other countries. How does it work here in the UK? So generally in government, you have three branches of government. You have uh, the legislature, the judiciary, and the executive. So the executive will be a king or a prime minister or a president, if it's a republic, um, who's the figurehead or seen as the leader of the country. You have the legislature, which is a, parliament or a congress or a senate and you have the judiciary which is the courts and the legal system britain's unique because uh all of those three uh branches of power aren't separated so for example the prime minister is boris johnson but to be the prime minister he also has to be an mp so he's a member of the legislature the parliament and he's the executive and the same with for example the attorney general who is like supposed to be the lead mm -hmm. legal figure in the country he's part of the judiciary and also part of the legislature so in the UK, as a result of that, we don't vote like in America where you have a presidential election. You mm -hmm. vote for Hillary or you vote for Trump. Sure. You vote for whoever, Clinton, or you vote for Bush or whatever it might be, right? Here you vote for your local MP, your local candidate. The one party which has the most seats, if they get a majority, can form a government. So that um, can complicate things in terms of people's understanding here in, in the UK and also in terms of how influential i think we have a democracy deficit in the uk because we have a system called first past the post which means it's not about who wins the most votes it's about who wins the most parliamentary seats Jeez. so for example we are here in london uh take for example i think we're in brent at the moment yeah. now in brent i don't know let's say there's what two hundred thousand people living just in this part of brent brent north or brent central whatever it might be the, you go outside into let's say the countryside you may have 20,000 people living in that constituency. Those mm -hmm. 20,000 people get one seat. And these 200,000 200, people get one, one seat. seat. Yep. So then you have a result of a deficit like that. You also have a result of people potentially having wasted votes. So for example, if you live in an area which is strongly conservative and you vote for liberal Democrats or Labour, you're going to be like, there's no point. It doesn't count to the end. So this is result. when tactical This vote. is where tactical voting How comes does that in. work as well? So... For example, you have a case where, let's say, um, a good example, Kensington. 
Kensington and Chelsea, I believe, is the name of the seat. But no, no, so it's Kensington is the name of the seat. Uh, for the first time, I think ever, maybe or for like a hundred years, Labour won that seat. A lady called Emma Dent Code, and uh, that was uh, a very close margin. Mm-hmm. Now the Lib Dems are running a campaign in Kensington, telling people, mm-hmm. "Oh, vote for us." But the reality is, people there have to make a choice. Okay, so you're against Brexit, but who has the most chance to win that seat? Would it be Labour, who have already won it, but by a very small margin? Or the Conservatives? Or the Lib Dems, who were in third place, I think, at the last election? And then they have to ask themselves, are they splitting the Remain vote? And so you have this problem where now people are having to look into which area, if especially if they're anti-Brexit, which area they want to vote to make it more likely that so you may not be voting for your political party of choice mm-hmm. you may be voting especially if brexit is a big issue for you on for the party that has the most chance of winning that seat and taking the vote away from the conservatives now on the other side you have uh the brexit party for example led by nigel farage and they've really done a big favor to the conservatives they withdrew from a lot of the seats so the conservatives could have a free run mm-hmm. um i believe five mps Resigned, or right? five candidates from the, yep. the Brexit party stood down and yep. uh, basically gave the Conservatives a free run. So it appears on the Leave side, there isn't really a need for tactical voting as such because just go vote for the Conservatives if you want to leave. Having said that, there are a lot of people who feel the deal Boris Johnson wants to pass isn't really Brexit mm-hmm. and it's not a, a strong enough Brexit. So even those people have an issue of who to vote for. So th- that's the situation. When you talk about the voting system, it can be complicated, but there are quite a, god, uh, a lot of good resources online. I think uh, Salim Qasim from the uh, Muslim Vibe mm-hmm. sent me a link yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, or was it Hasib? I need to check. It was one of the guys from the <laughs> yeah. Muslim Vibe. They sent me a, uh, uh, a link, and uh, that's a tactical voting guide. Yeah, for I think it was Hasib. To, I got it as well. Yeah, the people who want to vote. So it's, it, it, is, it is like that. Now, another thing with the, with the wasted vote thing is, um, it's, it's you know, you get situations where you might have different communities who want to vote for one political party and they're all in one area. So even though they win, it doesn't matter whether you win a seat by one vote or a thousand votes, well, you've still won that seat. So that extra number of votes doesn't count towards the tally. Anything, so yeah. I think there's a good argument that it's time to maybe reform the political system and the electoral system in particular. That's a good point. Other than Brexit, what are the main issues here uh, for this election? Because maybe for someone who... Even I, I, I spoke to a few people and I think we had this discussion with with yourself a few, a few days ago that even those people that voted remain in, 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 the, in, the, in the Brexit elections, sort of now they're saying, okay, no, actually we, we feel like because we the, the country voted to, to come out of Europe, then it should happen. So they're not so much concerned with, with, with the Brexit issue when, when, when selecting someone. What other issues are being are being discussed at this election, and what what do you think stands out, and what should people look out for? I think there are two parties who want this to be a very Brexit election, so the Tories and the Lib Dems, because the Lib Dems are running on a very strong Remain list. Mm-hmm. But then you have the Labour Party, who are kind of divided between themselves. In the North, a lot of the Labour voters are Leavers, and in the South or in the cities, they're Remainers. And so, for especially like the Labour Party, there's a big and not just the Labour Party, uh, millions of people around the world, there's uh, around the country, there's a focus on the NHS, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which is linked to Brexit in many ways. But yeah, there's a course. fear that um, post-Brexit, when the UK makes a trade deal with countries like the US, the US may say, right, you want a trade deal, 
well, we want to, to privatize. privatize the NHS and we want to have contracts for the NHS. So I, I might be mistaken, but a lot of people are saying this is just a tool some people are using to to ask you to vote for Labour. They're saying, you know, that's never really going to happen. Mm. The Tories haven't said in their manifesto that they're looking to privatise the NHS. Why is that being used as a tool mm. to against the Tories? I think it's a very real um, fear. Okay. I think it's something that the Conservatives have um, already entered into discussions about a post-trade deal, and they haven't explicitly said uh, the NHS. But I mean, when Donald Trump visited last time, he just was recently here last week, mm -hmm. the first time he came, he was like, yeah, everything's on the table, including the NHS. And then this time he was like, the NHS? What's that? Yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. So I think he was trying too hard to like distract attention away. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's also a fact that for many years, a lot of these big companies have been really lobbying hard for contracts to access the NHS. It's not just American companies. You have like, you know, Richard Branson's Virgin Group, who, you know, Richard Branson has a very popular public persona and a very popular public image and reputation. But actually... Um, he's one of the people who I think has won more contracts than anyone else when it comes to privatizing the NHS. So it's not just American, it's not just American companies, but the problem is after Brexit, if the UK has left the EU, is in desperate need for trade partners, they're going to have a weaker negotiating position. So the logic follows they're going to have to give something away in the trade deal. Now, we don't really have any oil in this country. We don't really have natural resources. We, we have some, but we're mainly a service economy. Yep. Um, financial services and other services. So the one big crown of the jewel, if you will, a jewel in the crown, the crown if you will, is the NHS. And so uh, it, it uh, does seem to be the case that um, that will be a massive issue. And that, again, like you asked me, you know, what are the other issues? I think as well, it comes down to not just in the context of Brexit, funding the NHS, funding public services. We've had since 2010 austerity. So there are a lot of people who feel that these public services have been underfunded. And so you've had a result in waiting times in hospitals, waiting times for kids to get into schools. School. And it depends on your perspective. Some people say it's underfunding. Others argue overspending, overspending or, or immigration. And that's been a right wing yeah. argument as well. Yeah, I was gonna. Uh, we'll come up to. We'll come up with um, the the spending issue, and of course, even the the, the issue of of immigration. Um, for Muslims, for our communities, it's 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 um, it's a debate that's becoming more popular, which is always good to see. Uh, Till recently, I think many Muslims from my community thought, "Why should I vote? Doesn't really matter." Well, you know, Whoever's in power is in power. My situation is not going to change. Um, some people will use things like uh, Islamophobia when it comes to, to who they vote for. Some use the excuse excuse that Labour and Tony Blair went into Iraq. Uh, so I'm never voting Labour because of, 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 that, of that war. Uh, others will say, you know, during the conservative time, I lived a better life. I paid less tax. What should, what? Firstly, why should our community be more involved? You know, I don't know if you've noticed. We they have become more interested in 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 in, in, the, in the in the elections this this, and why is this election in particular so important for our future, especially the youth growing up? Because mm -hmm. um, I feel, you know, every election is important, but I feel there's more importance on on, on this. 2019 elections. I think this one is uh, 
I mean, let's 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 handle this question in two ways. Um, why is this election more important, perhaps, than other ones? Not just as Muslims, but just in general. Mm-hmm. I think for everyone, it's more important because this election will define the very nature of the UK, of the state, of how this country operates. Because for the last, let's say, I don't know, forty plus years, the UK has been part of the European Union. When they leave the European Union, there are going to be so many changes on so many levels. Uh, in particular, let's say legally, that will affect everybody. And to bring it back to the Muslim question, you're then going to have issues of um, how secure do you feel in your country? You know, uh, will the legal system change? Will we get rid of uh, or bring in the so-called Bill of Rights? And will we get rid of uh, protections for religious minorities and other uh, legislation which has passed, not as a result of the EU, but while the UK has been in the European Union. And so there are some who fear that once we leave, it will give... Uh, particularly those on the right wing of politics or those who are anti-Muslim, the impetus and the uh, motivation to then start to target these other minority groups, in particular Muslims. And I think, you know, you ask why is this, I suppose, why have Muslims been more active maybe? Mm -hmm. I think it's brought into focus by some of the comments made by Boris Johnson in the past about Muslims and other minorities, black people, gypsies. Um, He's made comments about Muslim women, uh, which have come across as, you know, uh, disrespectful or offensive, or some have accused him of being racist. Which he apologized for. Which he apologized for the offense caused. That he caused. So it's, it's more like, I'm apologized that you got upset that I said this, rather than I'm apologizing for saying, okay. you know, when you get in trouble in school and someone says, and the teacher says, say sorry, I'm sorry. It's like, it's kind of a, it's a forced apology. So uh, in any case, he, he, it's, it's, it's a situation where, he, as the mayor of London, you know, won an election in possibly the most diverse city in the country, or let's say one of the most diverse cities in the world. So he would argue that that's in his defense. On the other hand, uh, the argument that I've seen others throw is this is what the kind of things he's saying in public. Imagine his views in private. And so there are many fears that it's not so much what he says, but what will he do as a prime minister? What, How will Muslims live in this country? And I think that's why there has been this uh, desire to get involved. And let, you know, let's not forget, not every Muslim is going to vote uh, against the Conservatives, whether for Labour or the Lib yeah. Dems or the Greens. There are a lot of uh, Muslims who vote Conservative, as you said, they might feel like economically they have uh, done well under the uh, last 10 years. But again, um, this is uh, the economy is an issue that goes beyond even religious divisions, right? Because you've, got, you've had 10 years of austerity, you've had rising inequality, uh, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. I think I read a stat the other day that the top, the richest six people or six families in this country own as much wealth as the poorest 80%. So 80% of people have the same amount of wealth as the richest six people. So, you know, it's kind of an unsustainable economic situation for many. And it then manifests itself in different ways, right? Like you have a rise in crime, you have a breakdown of society, you have, you know, if if, if you're shutting down all the libraries and all the youth clubs, all these kids are on the streets, bored, they start getting into fights. They start joining gangs. There's no youth services to look after them. There's no, uh, you know, real provisions for uh, social services and all these other issues. So that that's the the argument that uh, do we as Muslims care about our society or do we care, you know, just about the economic question isolated on its own? And so that's the question a lot of people have to kind of ask themselves going into this election. Now I can't say 
who people can and can't vote for, who they should and shouldn't vote for, because it's a complex issue and mm-hmm. it's not my position to say that. But I think these are uh, questions that many Muslim people will, will be asking themselves this week. Let's let's talk about our, our community. Um, hopefully a lot of people will be listening um, to this podcast with, with the elections coming up in literally two, three days. Um, again, the elections on Thursday there, 12th, 12th of, of December. Of December. Um, I think polls close at 10, so they have to get there before 10 o'clock. Okay, 10 p.m. Okay, so let, let's, let's, if we, in the next three or four minutes, weigh out uh, who should I vote for? Because, you know, a lot of people have, have asked me, who should I vote for? And um, there's all these websites where they ask you certain questions on your on your views, and then it tells you vote, blah, blah. So for, for Muslims, and again, this is general, so, you know, everyone's different. And like you said, we can't really tell anyone who to vote for. And um, a lot of our communities, I was just doing a small search before this uh, podcast on, on some of the areas where majority of my family members live and mm. people that I know. Most of them are labor seats by quite a majority. Um, someone who's maybe voting for the first time or doesn't know how it works, what are the top few, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot, the top <laughs> five things a Muslim should look for in your opinion? This mm. is your opinion. Doesn't this is not the progeny podcast opinion? Yeah. <laughs> it's your views. Yeah. Um, what are the top five things a Muslim in this country should look out for when uh, going out to vote on Thursday? So number one would probably be Brexit. I think Brexit's massive. Yeah, but I think Brexit's massive. I mean, we would have to a whole broad pod, podcast just to yeah, yeah, Are you going to invite me back? To yeah. Brexit <laughs> let's see. Let's see what happens. You know what? Let's see what happens on Thursday. Yeah, we and could then be leaving the EU very soon yeah. after that. I'll be back soon. Um, yeah, I think Brexit is probably a massive one. Again, it's you know, you asked me for five things. They may not necessarily be yeah, Muslim course. specific, but yeah. let's take Brexit as one. Yeah. I do think spending in public services is a massive, massive issue. I mean, at the end of the day, um, again, not just for Muslims, people have to ask themselves. Am I in this? Am I in the position where, if the NHS one day becomes like an Americanized system, where people have to pay for, you know, tens of thousands of pounds for an ambulance ride, mm. or as I've seen in the examples from the US, you know, women giving birth and then when they're doing skin to skin and holding their body, uh, their babies to their bodies, being charged like sixty dollars for that, or care for the elderly, are are we in the financial position where we can afford to do that, or is it worth maybe spending a bit more? in my tax, maybe pay 30, 40 pounds a month more tax, but making sure that these public services are well-funded and making sure that, you know, my children are looked after and that my grandchildren have the same opportunities that we have. And I think it's a sign of a a healthy society that we look after our most vulnerable, even as Muslims. And all the examples of, especially say from the followers of the Ahlul Bayt, the follow examples of the Imam looking for the most vulnerable people in society, I think that's a sign of a healthy society. So I think that should, Really, be a consideration for. I was going to go to into into, into sh- social um, care and social yeah. awareness. Social care, social awareness, all of these questions. I think, again, taking away from. I mean, you made a good point earlier about the Labour Party and the Iraq War, uh, especially under Tony Blair. It was a party that eventually showed itself to be extremely hostile to Muslims on a, on a number of levels. I mean, you have to remember, people talk about the Prevent Program. It was Labour which instituted this program first. Then the conservatives took over it. Mm-hmm. It was Labour who invent uh, who invaded Afghanistan. It was Labour who inve- invaded Iraq. It was Labour who passed a number of domestic uh, legislation, anti-terror legislation that were targeted specifically at Muslims. 
and challenging Muslims' freedom of speech. But it's something which the Conservatives have very e eagerly and gleefully taken on and enthusiastically uh, taken on and, and continued. So uh, I think it's also important to note that the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn is a very different party. Or Jeremy Corbyn is a very different leader, mm -hmm. should we say, to Tony Blair. He's somebody who has long since... Uh, shown solidarity with Muslim communities. He's somebody who's long been anti-war, anti-war with, with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, in particular uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know, he was one of the people in Hyde Park that you know that huge demonstration, millions of people who really predicted a lot of what would happen in the consequent sixteen years. You know, he he did say that this kind of invasion uh, would be would lead to the instability in the region and lots of deaths and. Ultimately, he was proved to be correct on that front. Uh, he's also somebody who supported the Palestinian cause very strongly. And this is one of the reasons he's yeah. also coming. So, so, so Brexit, and then we would say maybe social justice. Social justice. Tax. tax. A, lot, a lot of our, our, our youth, you know, who, who again are starting jobs uh, or in jobs at the moment, look at tax as something quite important. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've read both manifestos uh, of, of conservatives and Labour's, uh, or even the Liberal Democrats as well. Can you maybe explain the difference when it comes to tax between these three parties? A lot of people are saying, you know, I'll pay less tax if I vote conservatives. Is is that is that true to a sense? Well, or? just just the first thing. So the the first two, I'm going to leave the Liberal Democrats aside because I feel like um, the the main two parties that have a chance of forming the government are. Uh, the Labour Party and the Conservatives. So when it comes to economic policy in particular, the Lib Dems won't have that much say. They might have more say on whether we have a second referendum or not, or whether Brexit happens or not, if they enter a coalition. But in particular, the IFS, which is the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, recently came out and said actually both parties, Labour and the Conservatives, mm -hmm. have a lot of, uh, to put it mildly, a lot of work to do to explain how they're going to justify their economic policies. Because both of them actually are offering uh, a lot of money to roll out different things. I think the Conservatives want to roll out an extra 20 billion or so for the NHS. Labour's is saying 26 billion. Labour are offering free uh, or nation nationalising privatised uh, assets and and uh, the, the the free broadband, for example, mm -hmm. or fibre optic for you know parts of the country which many people say is going to be expensive so uh, actually both parties have had a question about their uh, spending plans i think where it comes to the question of tax is the conservatives have managed to bring the tax uh, allowance up so more of what you earn is tax free i think it's going up to like twelve thousand next next okay. tax year so the first twelve thousand of what you earn is tax free and this is seen as something which has helped a lot of the poorest people keep more money in their pockets the counter to that is that labor say that their um economic policies won't see a rise in tax for anyone who's not earning uh, more than i think eighty thousand pounds a year so for example if you are earning up to seventy nine thousand pounds a year you're not going to pay more tax anyway because all of these allowances are going to stay in place. So I think when it comes to the question of tax for the average person, I think many people, especially the young ones in our community, aren't at that level yet. Uh, the question is uh, not really going to affect them so much in terms of tax. The question might come is, will Labour be able to actually implement their economic policies? And if they do it, and they can do it successfully, uh, or if they do implement them, can they do it successfully? Can they make sure the economy grows? Can they make sure they do it in a way that doesn't drive away 
big businesses and investment from the country, which ultimately helps to create these jobs. The counter argument to that is the so-called trickle-down economics of uh, economics of Thatcher and Reagan hasn't worked. It's not a case that oh, if we let all the big companies have tax breaks and give them subsidies, it will roll down. It's the opposite. The rich seem to be getting Being richer, richer and the poor are getting poorer. I'd put foreign policy in there as well. Uh, <clears throat> as again, as one of the points we should look out for as, um, as 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 a Muslim community, foreign policy is something big. Um, and for me, it's, it's definitely in the top five. How 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 do the parties weigh out with with their foreign policy, especially that you mentioned? You know, it was the Labour government that went into war in Iraq and mm-hmm. Afghanistan. I think Jeremy Corbyn, in particular, um, his foreign policy views have been. Uh, well covered by the mainstream media they've been uh, kind of put out there that he is somebody who uh, is anti-war is anti-intervention but that as a result of that he's uh, the media accuse him of being aligned to uh, dictators and people like Bashar al-Assad for example so I suppose if you're a Muslim it has to you have to ask yourself a question uh, which is okay maybe I'm not for these governments, maybe I'm against these governments, but do I want the West continually getting involved in these situations? Now, you look at the conservatives, on the other hand, they actually haven't started any big massive wars like uh, Tony Blair and the Labour Party did. Mm -hmm. So people would say, actually, they're the ones who are the more perhaps isolationist. They tend not to get involved, but they support from the background. So they'll give Saudi Arabia the best weapons and sell them the best uh, armory, and they'll send British soldiers to Saudi to guide them and advise them how to fight the war in Yemen. But they won't get involved with boots on the ground themselves. And that might be a consequence of how many people died in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wants to send British soldiers around the world to die. True. So I think uh, when it comes to foreign policy, it just comes down to what do you as a Muslim prioritize? Do you want to see arms sales stop to uh, Saudi Arabia? Do you want to see perhaps uh, the Bahraini government brought into line and to improve the human rights, do you want to see somebody like? Yep. Do you want to see somebody like Bashar al-Assad overthrown? Do you think the West should be getting involved in that situation? Yeah, no, no, no. So it just depends, I suppose, on on how you view the Middle East. I think if you're somebody who doesn't want generally the West, even if you disagree with governments there, you know, like on a personal level, I Saddam Hussein killed my grandfather and two of my uncles, but I still oppose the Iraq War because mm. while Saddam was killing. People in my family and millions of Iraqis, it was the British and the Americans and the West who were giving him weapons and gas and poison and uh, were giving him lists and intelligence of mm. who was plotting against him. And so for me, I argued, well, okay, firstly, you guys helped him and put him there. So why would I trust you? And secondly, are you doing this for me? Are you yeah. getting rid of Saddam because you love me all of a sudden and you love my family and you want to help us? Or is it because no. Iraq just happens to have a lot of oil uh, under the ground? So I think people have to ask themselves, as a region and as Muslims, where do we draw the line with how much intervention comes from the West? It's, it's important you mentioned this Iraq war, and I think sometimes we look at things on, uh, you know, just how they look on face value. Well, mm. and you know, as as a community, I, I we are taught to look at things in depth. Yeah, you know, that's something that that if you look at specifically the the Shia sect. They, they we're encouraged to question. We're encouraged to question. So, so that's something is important that don't always look at things straight up from what mm. the media. And I want to come come to, towards the, the the media issue. Um, I also want to put um, poverty into this um, because uh, I I don't know. We, again, if you saw this article about 
kids uh, not having uh, or their parents not having enough money to buy kids jackets for the winter and coats for the winter uh, <clears throat> i was walking um, in um, in one of the sort of richest areas knightsbridge a few days ago from from hyde park and for the first time i noticed the numbers of homeless people on the streets were you know a few every few meters uh, underneath the the tunnel and the subways there i felt there was more homeless people than i had seen recently mm. uh, I'm, sh- I'm i haven't seen figures obviously i'm sure oh no it's rising it's, it's i'm sure it's, i'm sure it's rising again uh, but i haven't seen exact figures but i'm sure it's rising when it comes to to to, to poverty and to the situation you know because you know i had i had a relative visit from iraq and he was shocked that he saw homeless people in, in london he was like why is there homeless people a few meters away from harrods it didn't make sense to him and i said you know there is a, a quite big number of people that are poor enough maybe not to have homes and they're homeless when you when you when looking at the situation who who do you you know how what's the what's what are, what are the labor saying and what are the conservatives saying with the with the, the poverty situation because i feel again that more's been said by jeremy corbyn on the situation and i'm talking about an interview which i saw a few days ago on this morning mm-hmm. in which he spoke about you know going out to the streets and he said you know he specifically said i love meeting new people I love meeting people that are homeless and speaking to them and at the same time I love meeting people that are just starting off new jobs people that are starting off their new new businesses and he addressed this issue of homeless people so I think um since 2010 you've seen the uh, austerity program again uh, imposed by a government mm. that was led by the conservatives it was a hung parliament then so you had a coalition with the liberal democrats Mm-hmm. Uh, led by Nick Clegg at the time and David Cameron's Conservatives. And since then, you've had uh, cuts, again, to public services, cuts to funding, cuts to support for people in you know vulnerable situations. And uh, there have been many uh, who have put that, studies and researchers who have put that down to the austerity programme. So you've also had a situation where, since 2010, uh, you've also seen not just a rise in homelessness, but you've also seen a rise in... Uh, or uh, an issue with things like fuel poverty, where mothers have told me as part of my job as an RT journalist, you know, I've interviewed many people around mm. the country, things like I have to decide some nights whether to turn the heating on or whether to have food myself, wow. or whether to feed my kids or have food myself. And so uh, this is an issue which has uh, been ongoing since uh, austerity, the austerity program was implemented. And the context of that, again, which is why Jeremy Corbyn has managed to, you know, he, he may or may not win this election, but he's managed to really revolutionise the, the tone of debate in this country. And that even Boris Johnson is now, since he's become Prime Minister, saying, you know, again, austerity's over, we're going to spend an extra 20 billion on the NHS, we're going to spend billions on education, we're going to spend billions on this and that and this and that, um, but still keep universal credit. It's because Jeremy Corbyn very strongly has made the argument that since the financial crash in 2008, the previous government led by, again, a Labour government led by Gordon Brown, bailed out the banks. So they gave all these big banks, which were too big to fail, so-called too big to fail, rather than letting them you know, go out of business. For example, if you had a company and you didn't have enough money, you'd go out of business. Mm-hmm. The government decided to bail out all of these banks to the tunes of hundreds of billions of pounds. And in a way, the argument then came when the conservatives came into power that we have to pay for this 
by cutting public services. So looking at it, you know, in that context and looking at it, you know, in the cold, raw light of day, the bank's got hundreds of billions, already very wealthy institutions who gambled with people's lives and people's savings, lost, got bailed out. And the people who paid for it were the poor, the unemployed, the homeless, and the, dis and the disabled as well. And this is a question now since the imp implementation of universal credit, which is a reform to welfare, which again, many people have put down to causing difficulty with people, uh, workplace uh, capability tests. So if you apply for disability benefit, you have to prove that you're not fit for work. Some people have died uh, while, I mean, there was one example of a guy who had like been given months to live. He had like terminal cancer and they told him he was fit to work and he died just while, I mean, there was another guy who died while sitting in the job center trying to like, you know, oh. claim his benefits. I met a guy who was a victim of the 7-7 terrorist attack who had had his legs blown off and was told that he had to prove that he wasn't fit to work. And, you know, this is a guy, I went to interview him and he, had, he was in a wheelchair. He had, you know, basically no, no legs from the knees down. And he, was, he had a really good sense of humor. He looked at me and he said, you've been in this room for like three minutes. Do you think that maybe I might be disabled enough? <laughs> I didn't say that. What can I yeah, say to yeah. you? So, you know, the, it's just a very stressful process for many people. So, you know, when you ask the question about poverty, it then goes back to your other questions about, you know, tax and the economy. And again, as a community, do people, what do people prioritize? You know, what, what, do we do we care? Should we care? Or is it a case that we just say, you know, I'm all right if everyone else is suffering too bad? Yeah, I think the the, the incident you're talking about <clears throat> was a 65-year-old man yeah. who was uh, declared fit to work um, and he died, he collapsed um, and died while um, in a queue at, at, at the, the job, job centre. Yeah. So, and he, he was 65 years old. Yeah. Again, I mean, the uh, the pension age was raised uh, in yeah. the last 10 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So he really, he should have been retired at that age. Yeah. It's, I mean, these 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 are all important as well. Um, another issue which which is important, other than the five we've mentioned, and as as you mentioned, a lot of these aren't just for the Muslim community. They're, they're wider. They're, yeah. they're wider than that, but we we address them to our community because we want them more involved. Which brings me to to the to the issue of Islamophobia, which I feel has had so much media coverage recently. Um, why all of a sudden it's, it's being covered a lot by media and can you explain why this is important to, to who we vote for in this elections? I think the context of Islamophobia becoming more important is that look since 2001 in particular so when we had the 9-11 uh, uh, attack is that there was a number of you know anti-terror legislation passed which was kind of rushed through and again took away many people's uh, civil liberties or at least limited their civil liberties people said it chilled free speech so you've had a situation especially since 2005 and prevent where a lot of this legislation has targeted muslims so when we talk about islamophobia as well there's two types right there's boris johnson saying that women who wear the niqab look like letterboxes and that leads to a 350 percent rise in hate crimes in the immediate mm -hmm. aftermath which has an effect and then there's institutional islamophobia so uh, you know, having an opinion on Palestine might potentially get you in trouble at school. Uh, being worried that if your children give an opinion on politics or if your children give an opinion on 
social issues like relationship and sex education, especially in context of the recent changes to uh, LGBT education, are they going to then be called an extremist at school because you've tried to bring them up in line with your religion? So all of this is uh, one side of it, is an institutional one. And the other side is obviously uh, how society reacts, rising Islamophobia, um, you know, the impact of the war on terror, the impact of terrorist attacks. I mean, you have groups like ISIS who are overwhelmingly killing Muslims. Their biggest targets are Muslims. The people who fight them are Muslims. The people who have died fighting ISIS are Muslims. Mm -hmm. You know, myself and you, we visited graveyards in Najaf, for example, which is yep. just dedicated to those people who have fought against ISIS. ISIS. Tens of thousands of young men, younger than us, who gave their lives to stop this terrorist group. So then when they launch attacks on this country, people who are rightfully angry, but then it spills over into generalizing and saying Islamophobia, uh, Islamophobic comments and even Islamophobic attacks. So um, sometimes as well, we have to look at, you know, f not just foreign policy, but the impact of terrorism, how the media cover it. And again, media coverage, I think, Again, you can check the exact stats. There was one comment, uh, one one study. I think it was ninety-one percent of broadcast articles about Muslims. Sorry, one ninety-one percent of print media articles about Muslims were negative. Right. So we have to ask ourselves: Are Muslims ninety-one percent negative as a community, mm -hmm. or could this coverage be more balanced? Mm -hmm. Perhaps people could understand that. Muslims are doctors and lawyers and accountants and uh, social workers and contribute in many ways positively to British uh, society. But that, is that reflected in media coverage? Is that our fault as a community for being too insular? A study, to just to back, a study, sorry. Yeah. So I don't want people to think that well, you're just making these. Yeah, no, no. A study done by the University of Birmingham um, says that 90% of all coverage, so it's not just uh, print media, print media of all media coverage was <coughs> deemed to be negative against Muslims. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have uh, newspapers, you have TV channels, you have like magazines like The Spectator, uh, <coughs> really Islamophobic publications and right wing publications who claim to do this out of free speech, right? But then you ask them, okay, well, let's see the same energy when you talk about Israel or Jewish people. And then it's all of a sudden it's no, this is offensive, and so fine, it's offensive, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say on the one hand you can't talk about, uh, and I don't advocate it. But you course. can't say you can't talk about Jewish people in a negative way, and then talk about Muslims in the exact negative way. When some of the things you're criticizing Muslims about, for example, being let's say misogynistic, also impact the Jewish community, or being homophobic. Again. Uh, these accusations are thrown at Muslims, at Christians, at Jews, but yet when it comes to coverage of Muslims, it's very different in tone, different. right? So there's that aspect. Secondly, and it, and you know, you talk about Islamoph uh, Islamophobia. I think the reason it's become so relevant is that the campaign against Jeremy Corbyn has also manifested itself in accusations of uh, that he's anti-Semitic, right? Yeah. And again, this goes back to purely his advocacy for Palestine and Palestinian rights before he was the Labour leader some was very outspokenly in, uh, outspoken yep. in his support of Palestine and so the Israel lobby uh, supporters of Israel and even elements of the Israeli embassy have all really targeted Jeremy Corbyn for his stance on Palestine and have accused him repeatedly of being an anti-Semite now he would argue his issue is with a country or a government and its human rights abuses and he is not an anti-Semite who 
has a good record of advocating for Jewish people and some Jewish people have come out to support him uh, and say that he isn't one. But I think what that has done is almost in a way the left in a way to defend themselves against accusations of uh, anti-Semitism have then turned to the conservatives and said, well, hold on a minute. You're accusing us of this thing, but yet you have a party which is Islamophobic. And so I'll give you an example, right? So this is usually how the argument goes. Uh, people say, oh, the Labour Party or Jeremy Corbyn or his supporters are anti-Semitic. The Labour Party or their supporters will then say, but it's only like 0.06% of our members who are being investigated. Whereas there was a poll of conservative members about their attitudes to Islam and Muslims. Like over 50% thought that Islam was a threat to the Western way of life and so on and so forth. So this argument tends to become like a political the, football. The, the London Economic, uh, again, just to back up the point you mentioned, says that over 75% of Jer Jeremy Corbyn's media coverage is factually wrong. Factually, factually wrong. Yep. misrepresents him. And apparently in this article, you know, <coughs> which which the title of the article, the title, the, art, the title of the article is Jeremy Corbyn is the most smeared politician in history. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, you can just put this in Google and it will, you'll get hundreds tens and hundreds yeah. of, of articles was, was that tell you why he is being factually misrepresented and why the media is biased against him. Yeah. Uh, LSE done a study, 91% of articles about him yeah. are negative. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, there's a campaign, there's a campaign, there's a campaign. And, and the problem we have is that the media have been more than happy to take part in this campaign. And now it comes back to this question, right? So, and again, you can, you can search for it. There was a poll on, uh, conservative party members attitudes to Muslims and Islam. And if you want to bring up the actual numbers, right, mm. this is the question. And I say this as a journalist and somebody who understands how news works, how news is put together, how the editorial process works, how the editorial uh, priorities are made. Jeremy Corbyn gets attacked by the uh, chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, who himself has made very problematic and Islamophobic comments in the past mm -hmm. and is a outright supporter of Israel and has supported Israel uh, bombing and attacking Gaza in the past, right? This is a man who is a spiritual leader supposedly. He wrote a letter attacking Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. Now, as a response to that, uh, there were many people who came out and pointed out that, hold on a second, uh, why have the media taken this to be such a, like his word is final. You had uh, Jeremy Corbyn appearing on the Andrew Neil interview, being asked to apologize again and again. So they, they, the media took as fact what this man was saying and just ran with it. Why aren't you apologizing? And it's like, hold on a minute. Why am I apologizing? For what? What do you want me to apologize for? I'm not an anti-Semite. That was Corbyn's argument. When it comes to the Islam, uh, the, and, and Andrew Neil, for example, spent 10 minutes of like a 25 minute interview just yeah. focused on yeah. anti-Semitism. When it comes to Islamophobia. It's more than half of the conservative <laughs> party members. Have this view. Almost half of conservative party have members, you seen, sorry. Have you seen the media spend 10 minutes of a 20 minute segment with Boris Johnson just focusing on Islamophobia? At best, it might be like a side argument or at best, it might be, you know, on the 19th page of the newspaper or the BBC right at the bottom underneath where they talk about the football or whatever else. You know, it might be, oh, by the way, two conservative <clears throat> members were expelled for Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. I think two or three conservative candidates in this election have been expelled for anti-Semitism uh, anti as well. But it doesn't get the same type of coverage because the focus of the media is different. And so that's why the argument has been made that 
the media, particularly the private media, the skies, the mails, the express, the times, the telegraph are all very biased. So people talk about we have a free media. Yeah, the media is free in terms of who owns it mm. and the, the ability to, I suppose, access it. It's not, it's not controlled by the government, although the BBC is in, in many ways, but it's, uh, it's, it's also not that, that being, having a free media doesn't mean it's not a biased media or it has an agenda. And I think people are kind of waking up to it. And I think a lot of people have, have lost their trust in, in aspects of the media. Again, coming, coming back to us being as, 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 as Muslims, the way our history is written, I always say, you know, when you when you read history books, when you want to look at the the events that took place during the life of the prophet, and even after the the life of the prophet, with yeah. <clears throat> with 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 you know some some may call it some mayhem after the demise of the prophet. Yeah. Always, I always say, look at the author. Look at the who who wrote the history. Who are the authors that wrote this history? And then, and then you'll know, you know, why they they wrote it, you know. And then, even with with the hadith, look at who who's written it. What's the context? When it was it written? Why was it written? And again, media is playing this role again now when it comes to the elections. And I always say, ask yourself, why are they saying this? Do research, and that's why nowadays, I'm really careful. Even even some uh, some articles that are that support my view. I'm really careful in sharing them and believing them because I'm like, okay, let me check the source. Let me see if there's another article yeah. that supports this figure, because it, I feel that both sides, obviously, are uh, will will always try and I wouldn't say not tell you the truth, but try and um, influence you influence you to their way of thinking. To their way of thinking and um, talking. And I want to end on this note on, on the Islamophobia issue and move on. Um, there's a really good article which came out a few 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 months ago, but it's popped up again um, by the Muslim Vibe. Mm. Uh, if anyone's you know got time to read it, the title is 10 Islamophobic and Racist Quotes by New Pri- British Prime Minister Boris Johnson." It's probably a five minutes read, but it's it's, it's quite a good um, article. Uh, I just want to make a point, right? Yeah. Imagine that Boris Johnson has said that either about Jewish people, or imagine Jeremy Corbyn had said those ten things about Jewish people. What would the response have been from the media? What would the response have been from uh, the, the Why is it only on the Muslim vibe? But why is it only on the Muslim vibe? Exactly, mm-hmm. that would be front page t- Telegraph and Times. And so, so the question is again: It's not that people should say this about any group, but it's why is some form of hate speech seemingly acceptable in society and others aren't? And why do the media react in different ways? Is it because they come from uh, a certain political class and background where? They have a preference to one political party. So when, you know, again, a conservative candidate says something anti-Semitic, it's like, eh, well, look the other way. Whereas if a Labour member says it, it's, mm, well, we're going to make this front page news for the next six or seven days. So again, it, it is, it, you know, it, it, I, to go back to our original point, I can't, none of us can tell people how to vote, and especially in my position and my job and my role, I have no right to tell people how to vote, but these are the issues that they have to we, consider. Yeah, yeah, we need we need people to start um, questioning, thinking, researching, yeah. questioning uh, what, what, how they vote. Just Other than that, just one thing quickly: you mentioned about you know being afraid to share news because you thought it might be fake news. Yeah, there was an uh, there was a study that looked at everywhere from India to Brazil to Bangladesh, all these different places around yeah. the world, and it basically said that fake news shared on WhatsApp had a massive impact on how people perceive. 
and vote in those elections very quickly. In the you know last couple of weeks ago, there was an attack in London Bridge. Mm. There was this thing that went viral. Um, that was a fake tweet that had been photoshopped and looked like Jeremy Corbyn was supporting the attacker or saying we shouldn't wow. have shot him. Mm. This thing went viral before people realized it was fake, fake news. Uh, there was a Guardian journalist. Now the Guardian is not particularly pro Corbyn; they're more liberal centrists than, than pro Corbyn. A, a Guardian journalist was uh, in a cab, and he was tweeting and saying, "I just got out of this cab, and the driver was going crazy. Ah, it's Corbyn. He supports the terrorists." And he goes, "I took twenty minutes trying to explain to this guy this tweet is fake. It's fake news. It's not real." And he goes, "Even when I got out of the cab, he goes after explaining to him in so much detail, the guy was still like, hmm." He was still oh, not right. sure. He's still not sure. <laughs> and so it just has such a big of impact. Course, of course. And like you said, it's if you I already have an opinion. It's it, it, it reinforces it. And I don't yeah. want to hear no other opinion. And so, we're all guilty of it. Of course, of course. Um for the Muslim, for, for our Muslim communities, what wh- what should Muslims be doing outside, you know, other than this 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 election? How should Muslims be more involved? I think we have to ask big, big, big questions about what our role in this country is how much we are getting involved in politics and also long term beyond just politics we for example as an particularly let's say those in the iraqi community just seem to be uh, focused on certain career paths for our children right we want our children to be maybe engineers maybe pharmacists <laughs> doctors dentists I think we have enough doctors and dentists. We now need lawyers. We need journalists. We need people getting involved in politics as a career, becoming MPs as a career, and joining political parties, whatever your political view, but getting involved from the grassroots all the way up to the top of politics and holding on to your principles. We don't need any more uh, you know, token candidates, somebody who will uh, maybe sell out his own community or somebody who will not, keep to the spirit of solidarity with uh, Islam and his own community just to get a promotion or to get a position in government <laughs> or in power. Yeah. That's, not, that's not what we're talking about. We don't need Muslim faces and names. We don't need non-Muslim faces or names. We need people who are principled on the basis of looking after their neighbours and their society and being good citizens and so on Social and so forth. Social justice, yeah. So I no. think even beyond just this election, we need to look at ourselves and say, do we have enough of these professions, in particular lawyers? Yeah. It's so important that we have a legal protection for our community. So for example, in five or 10, or maybe even less than that years, they may come and say, all right, uh, we're gonna get rid of halal meat. How are we gonna defend it? Do we have the infrastructure in place to say, actually, this is our right as a religious group? Do we have the infrastructure to say, uh, you know, hands off, leave us alone, we wanna practice our rights? Or are we gonna do what we always do, which is just kind of back away and hope the problem sorts itself out. So that's the long-term view. I think we really need to change our focus as a community. Short-term, I think people need to stay engaged after the election, join a political party, get mm. involved, go to meetings, uh, hold events. Uh, you know, you've had these uh, hustings, uh, these debates which have been taking place in, you know, town halls and churches and mosques around the country. All of that is important. People need to read I can't stress the importance enough of our community reading, reading, read, read everything, read history books, read uh, and question, read and question. I'll always say, you know, the first verse to be revealed to the Holy Prophet was Iqra, read. 
That's right. So, um, and sadly, 1,400 years later, where we've done yeah. the opposite. We've done the opposite. And it's, I know it's hard. Look, we live in the YouTube generation, right? Yeah. Where even watching a 20 minute YouTube video is difficult for some people. It's long. <laughs> but if you're watching the, Netflix, like, I think this, this, this uh, podcast, we're going to have to cut into 90 second clips. And yeah. So, so people go viral because people, people don't have time or people don't have the attention span. But reading is so, and if you can't read, you're always on the go, get audiobooks. There are so many audiobooks that um, are now on Google and all of these other uh, platforms, Apple and so on, and understand the context of history. Again, it comes it comes down to what you said, question. When you get an article, okay, The Independent, generally seen as quite good on foreign policy, who owns The Independent? A Russian billionaire. So when he writes an article about Russia, for example, is it positive? Does he have an agenda? I work at RT. Even RT, you watch RT. You <laughs> use Russia as the yeah, example. Yeah, no. Great example, right? <laughs> so I, I work at RT. So maybe when they talk about Ukraine, why? Why do they take this position on Ukraine? Why does the BBC take that position in Ukraine? Could it be because the Russians and the British have different interests in Ukraine? Yes. So question. Even RT, the, uh, the slogan is question more. So yeah. I always encourage people, whatever your media uh, choice that you read is or that you watch, uh, research it, understand who owns it, understand who funds it, understand what their political agenda is. Uh, are they, you know, we don't really have many left-wing mainstream newspapers, but the Daily Mirror is an example. Why po are they supporting Labour in this election? Why are the Sun supporting the Conservatives? Who owns the Sun? Who owns the Times? Who owns the Telegraphs? <laughs> Once people understand that, they'll, they'll get a better understanding and a better instinct, right? That when I read something, how is it worded? And this is a course that I, I'm really keen on giving, just even reading between the lines. I think it's something that we really, really need to educate our community on. Awesome. Thank you very much, uh, Asa. There's so much more to, to speak about, but sadly we've come to the end of today's podcast. Um, I, I think uh, I spoke too much. Huh? <laughs> I'd be delighted, hopefully, inshallah, to have you on um, after the elections and maybe just after January, because I believe... Maybe, maybe Brexit might take place then. Yeah. Let's see what happens. But again, a f um, final message again for, for everyone listening. I hope everyone has registered to vote. If you haven't, yeah. then tough. <laughs> it's too, too late. late. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've registered, make sure you go out. If you're not doing it, obviously by post, and make sure you go out on Thursday the 12th to vote. And inshallah, we'll hear from Isa after the elections. Inshallah. Thank you. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you.